we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is a favorable, favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. Through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. If you guys would take a moment just in silent prayer, just to prepare your, guys, your hearts and minds for the message tonight, and then I will pray us into the message. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, I just thank you for this day that you have given us, how you've brought every single person here this evening to hear your word preached and proclaimed. Lord, I know that your word will not go out in vain. God, I pray that you would speak through me and let this message be all glory to you. And I pray that it would encourage the Christian, convict the Christian, and bring somebody in here that does not know you to salvation. It's in your holy and precious name I pray. Amen. You guys may be seated. Okay. It's actually nice because you guys have masks on, so I can't really see your face. It's a little less nerve-wracking. Um, <clears throat> so a few weeks ago, Pastor Jeremy texted me, asked me if I was ready to preach tonight on the 6th. And I said yes, and he told me that I was good to preach on any topic I wanted to. Um, which is something that I've never done before. So that was also a little nerve wracking. But I spent a few days thinking about what it was that I actually wanted to preach on. And as I was thinking about it, I realized over the past four or five months that I've been very anxious and very distracted during this pandemic that we've been facing. I know I'm not the only one. And it's interesting because it seems like the anxiety is coming from pretty much every level, whether it's locally here, like we have to wear masks or sometimes where church shuts down. Um, you know, we have quarantining places that we like to go are shut down. We can't really do things like, like we normally do. You jump up a little bit bigger and we have states, some states and, and uh, governors wanting to shut churches down indefinitely until things are taken care of, whenever that will be. Um, we've got murder hornets flying around, right? Uh, there's a lot of things going on. Um, and then you have, even to a worldwide level, 
we have persecution happening over in China heavily. Um, they're basically, the Chinese government is just cracking down on all Christian churches. Uh, we have things like the Beirut explosion. Um, crazy stuff going on. And I had noticed that I had been very anxious and distracted just because of the current climate that we're facing. And something that all of you have probably realized if you've been doing any introspection at all is that when circumstances aren't comfortable, our normal circumstances aren't comfortable, we turn to other things for comfort that we probably shouldn't be. And, and, and what we end up doing is neglecting the priorities that God has given us. This is a question for all of you that you don't have to answer out loud, but genuinely ask yourself, how has your time in the Word and prayer been over the past three or four months? Compare it to before all of this happened. How has your time been reaching out to other people? Whether it had to be over Zoom, which makes it even harder, or phone calls, which makes it even harder. How has your intentionality been in meeting with other people? I look at it like, you guys have probably felt this before. You go through your, uh, you're at your last day at work for the week, okay? And your alarm goes off at, you know, five o'clock in the morning, mine does. And you sit there for about five minutes, wrestling whether or not you're gonna call off because you're just so tired. Um, and you eventually, you know, most of us work through that temptation. We get up, we get out of bed, and you know, we're glad we did it for more than one reason, but especially come payday. Because if you would have called off, your paycheck would have been shorter. But sometimes when our circumstances change and they're not as comfortable as we're used to them being, we get into a calling off mentality in our Christianity, in our walk. And a lot of us don't get up in those five minutes. We go back to sleep. And we don't necessarily think about how at the end of our life, there's going to be a paycheck as well. And God will reward those who worked hard for him and those who did not will suffer loss. We need to ask ourselves a question though, in light of this climate and, and things we're facing. What if this is the new norm? Are we waiting for things to just go back to the way they were? What if they don't go back to the way they were? Are you guys going to just keep sleeping in? Or are we going to wake up? Are we going to get our mindset out of this rut that we've been in over the last four or five months? And I know I'm not alone when I say that. So a good thing we can do is turn to scripture and see what was happening in the New Testament times. What was the norm like for Paul and for other believers? So turn over a couple chapters. We're going to be in uh, chapter 11, verse 29 excuse me, uh, 24 through 29. This is Paul speaking. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received the hands of the Jews, 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I was adrift at sea 
on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak, and I am not weak? Who is made to fall, and I am not indignant? So, at least for Paul, this was his norm. This was his walk. After he became a Christian, this is what his life looked like. And it wasn't that extreme for every believer, but it was far more extreme for those believers than what we're facing here in America today. And so, Paul did not start, but Paul did not wait for comfortable circumstances to start working for God. He didn't. As soon as Paul was called by Jesus on the Damascus Road, he was flipped. And he was, from then on, he had a mission to serve Christ. Let's look over at uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1. And we'll see an example in verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing to me, me to his service, that's work, okay? Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that, G that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. So Paul had a mission. As soon as he came to know Christ, his life was dedicated to that mission. It did not matter what circumstance or obstacle was in his way. And he gets so emotional in this text right here of just the grace and love that was overflowing for him in Christ. And in verse 17, he says, he just can't help it. He says, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. It just poured, his heart just poured into that letter. And he couldn't help but just praise God after remembering the grace that he had received from Christ. We have a mission also as believers here today. Look at uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. Okay. So we are an ambassador for Jesus. That is your life now as a Christian, or it should be. Okay. An ambassador never works in their own country. They're always in a foreign land on a mission. They're not dwelling in their own country. And the same thing goes for a Christian. This world we're dwelling in is not our land. We have a home in eternity with Christ, and right now we're here representing him. We're the face of him. We're the face of Christianity in a lost, broken, anxiety-driven world and sin-driven world. So we need to ask ourselves a question. Do we look like ambassadors for Christ in a foreign land? Or do we look like natives here? Do we look like we live here? that this is our permanent home and dwelling. 
So we need to ask ourselves, how can we be ambassadors for Christ? What, how do we do this? Well, it's actually only through the work of Christ can you be an ambassador for Christ. Look at verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You, you can't be an ambassador to a country that you're an enemy of, right? You, you cannot be an ambassador of Christ if you're an enemy of Christ. And so the only way to actually work for him is to be reconciled to him, to God. And Jesus does that with his work on the cross. So what does our work look like as, like what do we do as ambassadors for Christ? Well, in chapter six, verse one, Paul says, working together with him then, we appeal to you to not to re- receive the grace of God in vain. So we work together with Christ as ambassadors for him. How do we work with God? Because it doesn't seem like God doesn't need us, right? Yet he still offers us the opportunity to work with him. That's amazing for one, but what does that actually look like? How does that play out in a Christian life? So in the, we're gonna go over two reasons. There's two reasons what I wanna talk about this evening. The first one's the actual context of this portion of scripture, and that's evangelism, okay? We've all heard the word evangelism before. Evangelist, evangelism, evangelizing. It comes from the Greek word euangelizo, which literally means to proclaim the gospel or to proclaim the good news. And I wanna emphasize that this is proclaiming the gospel, okay? Your testimony is not the gospel. There is nothing wrong with sharing your testimony. But if you don't include the gospel, what are you actually saying? That you were a crummy person and now you're a little bit better? That you've changed? What, who cares? Unless you point to the object and source of that change, which is Christ. Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter two. Starting in verse one. And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Again, I wanna emphasize that there is nothing wrong with sharing the gospel or sharing your testimony. Of course, there's nothing wrong with sharing the gospel. There's nothing wrong with sharing your testimony. Paul does it multiple times, but it's never the primary focus. Christ is always a primary focus. Also, we need to remember that the gospel literally means in Greek, good news. Okay, good news. How can something be good news to someone if they don't know how bad off they really are, okay? Good news becomes okay news. I mean, I'm not like this savior thing's nice, but I'm not really that bad, so I really don't need a savior. When in fact, those who are outside of Christ are dead in their sins. They have no hope without a savior. And we come proclaiming Christ as our savior. And back in verse one of chapter six, Paul says, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. And another way of saying this is, is to urge, 
There's other translations that say, we urge you. And he's urging people not to receive the grace of God in vain because there's a very real chance that they could receive the grace of God in vain, okay? There are many ways to receive the grace of God in vain. If you come to Jesus for a better life on this earth, you could definitely receive the grace of God in vain. If you come for just a get out of hell ticket, you could definitely receive the grace of God in vain. If you come for just better health or prosperity, you could definitely receive the grace of God in vain. If you come to church just because you like the people, you could receive the grace of God in vain. People reject the gospel all the time. And there may be somebody in this room that is currently rejecting the gospel. We can't just think that because you're going to church, you know him. But we keep urging, just like Paul did, because we know the gospel has power. Turn to Romans chapter 1, verse 16. We all, a lot of us probably know this verse. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Everyone who believes in the gospel will be saved. Fact. No exception. And one of the ways that we actually work with God is proclaiming the gospel. Turn over to Romans chapter 10. Another very familiar portion of scripture. We're going to look at verse 14 through 17. How then will they call on him who they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So we have a beautiful mission as Christians to proclaim the gospel because we're preaching a beautiful God. We're preaching a beautiful gospel. But there's also another reason why Paul is urging the way that he's urging. And that's because time is running out to accept this grace from God. There are a few examples of God extending his grace only for a period of time in scripture. He warned the people of the pre-flooded world through Noah in Genesis chapter 6. He gave 120 years for man to reside on the earth before he flooded. Through Hosea, he warned an apostate Israel that they will seek the Lord but not find him. In Hosea chapter 5 or 6, And let's turn over to Isaiah chapter 55. Looking at verse 6 and 7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Emphasizing that won't always be the case. Let the wicked forsake his way and let the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and ye may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. And then lastly, looking at Hebrews chapter 12. We're doing some flipping tonight. It's good for you. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15. 
See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought after it with tears. There's a reason why in hell, it's described as weeping. It signifies regret and sorrow. And he's giving non-believers an opportunity to avoid that and be able to rejoice in the Lord. Today is still the day of salvation. God has graciously given unbelievers more time to come, repent for their sins, and believe in the saving work of Christ. Paul was preaching that to the Corinthians then. It was still the day of salvation then, as it is now. Nothing's changed because he has not returned yet, but he's going to return. And you better be right with him when he does, because every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. But you can do it willingly now, or you will be forced to then. look at verse 3 of 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found within our ministry. So as God wants to use us to draw people to him, okay, we need to examine ourselves and see if we're actually hindering anybody in their process of believing the gospel. I like to think of it as imagine that you are leading a blind man through a a very dense forest, okay? And it's already going to be hard enough leading that person. We need to be making every effort to clear out a path, to clear out brush. But what if by your actions, instead of clearing out a path, you're throwing rocks in his way? You're throwing sticks in front of him, making him trip and stumble and fall. Look at Romans chapter 2. We're going to look at verse 21. You then who teach others, do not teach yourself. While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. All of us do this to some degree. All of us. Because we're not perfect. We still sin. But we have to fight every single day to not discredit the gospel of God in our actions. How many of us have met somebody who when they were talking to you, maybe you brought up Christianity and how you're a Christian, how they said that they left Christianity because of something their pastor did, because of something that a friend or a family member who is a Christian did to them. You don't have the power to condemn somebody, but God may use you as a believer, using your actions to bring further condemnation on somebody. Let's use work as an example. And I'm hesitant because Christy's here and I work with her. So Um, (laughs) people at your job, let's say people at your job know you're a believer. 
and they watch you, whether you think so or not, people, somebody's always watching you. <clears throat> Let's say you go into work, but your mind's not really there. And this is just, just, just a habit of yours. You procrastinate, you're lazy, you grumble, you complain about the job. People who are outside of Christ are working much harder than you. You, as an ambassador of Christ, you're painting a picture for who you represent. And when you are working like that, it's not good. It's not good. You're discrediting the gospel. You're bringing shame to Christ. So think about this. This non-believer who you are in front of, as they are walking to hell, instead of you walking up to them, grabbing them by the hand, planting your feet, and pulling with all of your might, begging them to repent and hoping that God uses you. Instead, you walk up to them, you grab them by the hand, and you walk with them on their way to hell. And you yourself, as a believer, won't go there. And you also don't have the power to condemn somebody their own sin does that. They will have no excuse. But as a Christian who's been saved by grace through faith in Christ, would you then walk hand in hand with somebody as they walk to hell? Charles Spurgeon has a quote, a very famous quote by him. If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled with the teeth of our exertions and let no one go unwarned and unprayed for. We also need to understand that us living for God and actually glorifying God may have the exact same effect on people but through opposite means. You being an example of Christ can lead people to scoff, to mock you, to scorn you, to laugh at you, even treat you with contempt, maybe even persecute you. It's happening to our brothers and sisters all over the world. But our hope is that God will use us in our obedience to draw people to him. Take a look at uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 22. So flee from youthful, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Having nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies, you know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. I want to separate these really quick and look at this. Okay, so verse 22, we have living out the gospel, fleeing from youthful passions, pursuing righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies, or anything like that, not being quarrelsome. That's living the gospel out, 
okay? But then it doesn't just stop at living the gospel out. Look at verse 24. In the Lord's service, uh, excuse me, correcting his opponents with gentleness, being able to teach. So there's a living out of the gospel and there's also a proclaiming of the gospel. They go hand in hand. Doing one without the other, if you just live the gospel out without preaching it, you just look like a really good person. If you preach the gospel out without living it, you look like a hypocrite and there's no weight behind your words. They're inextricably tied together and we have to proclaim and live. And also remember that even if in your obedience and you living out and proclaiming and nobody comes to saving faith, God is still pleased with you. He is still pleased with you. Your labor is not in vain. But this leads us to the second way that we work with God, and that's our sanctification. As we just talked about, Christians every day are to make the gospel or to make their day about God and His glory, and to live a life worthy of the gospel, to not bring shame to God's name. And we do that by participating in our sanctification. And it's a big word that just means that when you boil it down to a nutshell, it's obedience to Christ. And this obedience is in increasing measure as we mature in our relationship with him. If you, um, I mean, we can give a couple examples. If you were a Christian, or excuse me, you were a non-believer, and when you were a non-believer, you lied on your taxes, right? You said you had one income, you had multiple incomes. You come to know Christ, and you have this weight on you, a conviction, and you decide not to, or you start reporting those uh, those incomes. That's sanctification. You going from a coarse speaker, using profane language, not caring about what other people are feeling, and then you come to know Christ, and you your speech is then filled with gentleness and love and patience, and, and that grows. That's sanctification. It's obedience. Sometimes people ask the question, is it me? Is it through my choices that I participate in my sanctification or is it the Holy Spirit in me? Yes, both, okay? Without the Holy Spirit, you, have, you would have no ability to grow in sanctification, okay? Your good deeds would bring no glory to God because they're not done in faith. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. It's only through the Holy Spirit's power, him interceding in prayer for you, him sealing you, him giving you strength, that you actually have the ability to participate in your sanctification. But at the same time, you're not just a robot that's being controlled by the Holy Spirit. Uh, you know you're not because you still sin. If God was completely controlling you, you wouldn't be sinning. But again, you do participate in this. So take a look at um, Philippians chapter 2. And we're going to look at verse 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So, Chapter 12, or excuse me, verse 12, he says, work out your own salvation. 
But then in verse 13, it says, God who works in you. Both are reality. They both take place. Working out your own salvation does not mean that you contribute to your salvation at all. The salvation, you're justified. And the moment you accept Christ, you are justified. This is referring to sanctification. We display the evidence of that salvation by our good works and our sanctification, by our obedience to God's word. So going back to um, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, I want to briefly skip over verse 4 and 5 for a moment, and I want to look at verse 6. Paul says, By purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. So all of those ways, purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, genuine love, truthful speech, those are all ways that we make choices to be obedient. You make a choice to grow in the knowledge of Christ by getting into his word. You make a choice to be patient with somebody who frustrates you, to be kind, to be gentle, when everything is telling you not to be. There are two things in that list that we do not contribute to, okay? That's the Holy Spirit, and that's the power of God. We have nothing to do with that. That's all him. But they're both dynamics in sanctification. They're both dynamics in our walk. And all of these little ways right here, all these ways can be big ways or little ways. There are times where you will display great patience in your life because you're going through something overwhelming. And there are times where somebody cuts you off in traffic, instead of blaring your horn and giving them a bird, you don't say anything. Patience, kindness. And it's happening all the time. There's a war going on all the time. That's why it's happening all the time. You're either displaying the fruits of the Spirit or you're not. So we're going to shift gears a little bit, and I hope these things will be an encouragement to you, but I want to look back at verse 4 and verse 5. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance and afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, riots, labors, sleepless nights, and hunger. So here's just another example of what life was like for Paul and for believers at that time, because he says we in this text, plural. He's talking about other Christians doing these same things, exhibiting sanctification. This is what life was like for them. This was their climate. And look at how Paul and those other believers still choose to respond. Verse 6, what we just read. By purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, truthful speech, the power of God, with weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. If you put yourself in their shoes, based off of how you do now in this climate, could you respond like that? With what they were going through, beatings, imprisonments? 
Could you say that genuinely you would do that? I can tell you that they did not do that in their own strength. God equipped them with his strength to be able to endure those things. And he will equip every single one of you who know Christ to do the exact same thing for whatever's coming, whatever way it may lie before us. They had death looming over them and they still glorified God in their obedience. And here's the best part. All they were doing was imitating Christ. They had, and we have, the perfect example in front of us in this word. Philippians 2.7 says, but he, Christ, emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He lived a perfect life. He came into this creation, lived a perfect life, and was obedient the entire time, even to death. We're still called to obedience in the midst of suffering. Nothing changes, okay? You don't get a get out of obedience card when stuff is going wrong. Even as this country changes, even as this world changes, we are not to change. We're still called to get into this book because this book does not change. Looking at verse 7, it says, With the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. So there's a weapon given to us here, two of them, okay? Weapons of righteousness. And if we look over at uh, chapter 10, verse 3, we see that this, this is not a physical weapon that we're dealing with here. It's the word of God is the weapon that we've been given. And we're not using it to wage a physical war against flesh and blood. Look at verse three. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. So we are waging war against anything that comes against the gospel, any argument, any philosophy, any human wisdom or opinion. It all crumbles under the gospel. No argument against the gospel will stand. It cannot hold. It crumbles. All of those things point people away from Christ. All of them. And you have to remember that you were in their shoes at one point, Christian. You were in their shoes. And somebody proclaimed the gospel to you. And you came to repentance. So you knowing that, you knowing what it took, you know what it takes to go back out and do it and to proclaim. And you know how important it is because we're waging a war. These lost people don't know it, but they are working for the enemy. Who wants them dead? And it will lead to death. So you might say to me, Zach, 
This seems really hard. And I'm scared to do this in light of everything going on. Maybe you're scared of the way you see this country or this world headed. Maybe you're scared of what it might be like for Christians in the future. Maybe you're scared of suffering and persecution or being mocked. Maybe you're just scared of having your comfort stripped from you. When faced with the possibility of all of these things, it can be very, very scary. But I just want to encourage you a little bit. Turn over, let the word of God encourage you a little bit, turning over to Romans chapter 8. Look at verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. It doesn't even come close. The suffering, the lack of comfort, the mocking, the scorning, the persecution does not even compare to the glory that we will have with Christ. Having your mind set on eternity will help you endure the temporary temporary suffering that we will go through as Christians, however small or big that might be. But I will tell you, that it is worth living a thousand lives of suffering to be with Christ. And that's just, it's the big number. It could, it's infinitely just to be with Christ. It's worth it. Some Christians will be mocked. Some Christians will be martyred. Christ is worth both. And his grace is sufficient to carry you through either one of those things. As we read these last few verses, I want us to remember Christ. The single most loved and hated person in all of history. On one hand, worshiped as the true God, the forgiver of sins, the true source of joy and of comfort, of peace and of reconciliation. And on the other hand, despised and rejected by men viewed as a threat to their authority, blasphemed against by all people or by people all over the world. And as ambassadors for him, remember what you're doing, you're representing him. You should expect to be treated no differently. Jesus says in John 15, 18 through 21, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things I do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. So looking at verse 8 of 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, 
just as Christ was, just as Paul was, and as countless Christians that have come before us, we too will be honored by some and dishonored by others. Slandered by some and praised by some. And we're gonna look at this list of paradoxes the last couple verses. And I want us to look at these paradoxes not in light of a fallen world, okay? So I want our minds to not be here. I want it to be in eternity as we read this text, okay? And you'll get a really clear picture of what this is talking about. We need to think about this text in light of a victory won by Christ that we will be fully immersed in for all of eternity. Number one, we are treated as imposters and yet true. Regardless of what this world says, we are sharing the truth of Christ. It's a fact. There, there is no fallibility in the gospel. It's infallible. And so regardless of what this world says, of the lies it spreads, we are true. And God is pleased when he sees this. Number two, unknown yet well-known. There are Christians all over who have dedicated their lives to Christ and they'll never make the news. They'll never make the headlines. Seldom to be thanked or praised. And yet they are satisfied with knowing that their father in heaven is looking down on them pleased and that their labor is not in vain. Number three, as dying and behold, we live as punished and yet not killed. Our bodies and minds will fail us one day, whether it's through natural causes, whether it's through martyrdom, whatever it could be. We will all have to face death. And even though that time is coming, for those who know Christ, death is just a doorway that leads to him. So even though we're dying and even though we're killed, we're alive in Christ, and we can rejoice in that. Number four, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Many of us have things to be sorry for and sorrowful for. Brokenness over the lost, our own sin, suffering going on in our lives, pain, countless scenarios to be sorrowful for but we rejoice as believers because we know that God works all things together for good for those who called according to his purpose. Number five, as poor yet making many rich. As believers, all of your possessions could be taken away. And yet if you have Christ, you lack nothing. Not only that, you have the greatest treasure that could ever be offered to you. And when we share this treasure with others and they accept it, they too become rich. And they become rich in the grace and knowledge of, of Jesus Christ. This is what it means to have nothing and yet possess everything. There is a very, very heartbreaking reality to all of this though. If these paradoxes are meant in this way for the Christian, then for the non-believer, they apply also, but in the opposite.
Imposter isn't yet true. In fact, it's the opposite. Even though they claim to be true, they are imposters. They preach lies and they may not even know it. As unknown and yet well-known or well-known and yet not known by God. They have the praise of men. They have everything they could ever ask for in this world. And yet they have nothing because they're not known by God in a saving way. We can look at the next one. Living and yet they're dying. They're dead on the inside. Their life may be full here, but it is incredibly temporary for them and death is waiting for them. We can look at punished and not killed. Many non-believers go unpunished and yet they will be killed. Many people go in this lifetime just full of comfort, never knowing anything of suffering and yet it will ultimately lead to death. Rejoicing all of the time and yet there will be sorrow. Rejoicing in the world's riches, in comfort, in praise of men, and it'll all amount to nothing. Rich, and yet making many poor. Rich in this world, and those who follow them are becoming more and more poor because their eyes are distracted they're fixated on the wrong thing. They make things here their God instead of serving the one true God. And lastly, having everything and yet possessing nothing. So in light of all of this, I hope that stirs us up to get out of this mindset that we've been in as Pastor Jeremy talked about I think it was last Sunday or it was last Thursday. Getting out of this COVID brain. There, there's a war going on. And there are so many people who are on the losing side of this war. And as an ambassador, individually, each one of you, ambassadors for Christ, what are you doing to represent him and show the truth of Christ to a lost and broken world. And if anybody here does not know Christ, I hope your eyes have been opened tonight. And you can see, please, I, I plead with you to not receive the grace of God in vain and to accept Christ as your savior. The way, the truth, and the life no man comes to the Father except through Christ. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, many of us have been in a mindset that has been lazy, seeking comfort, selfish, seeking our own ambition. God, I pray that you would draw us out of that mud that's so hard to get out of. We have no ability in and of ourselves. 
Only by your grace can we stand and walk in obedience to you despite how uncomfortable things are. I pray that you would help us to have the strength to do that. God, I pray for anybody in here that does not know you. They've heard the gospel. I pray, Lord, that salvation would come tonight and that they wouldn't hide that, but they would proclaim their new position as an ambassador for you. It's in your holy and precious name I pray. Amen.